This episode of The Transmission is brought to you by Audible.com, the leader in spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. For details, go to audiblepodcast.com slash transmission. The Transmission, episode 71, September 20th, 2009. I almost had a baby. Me, a baby. I can't do this. Taco night? I don't do taco night. Aloha from the Island Lost fans. You are tuned into the transmission. This is a podcast devoted to the show Lost on ABC. I'm Jen. And I'm Ryan. And we are continuing our revisit of the third season of Lost as we attempt to survive the long, dark hiatus before the final season of our favorite show. And here's how our podcast breaks down. We'll quickly recap the next episodes from season three of Lost. That is episodes four, five, and six. And then we will share our take on those. Then we'll hear your thoughts on these episodes in You All, Everybody. We'll share another Lost song from the Others Lost band. And finally, we're going to cover the last two weeks of Lost production here on the island in the very crowded, very likely, maybe you don't want to listen, forward cabin, including some stuff I've saved just for this show. Sound good? Yeah, let's get lost. So let's do this. Episode 4, Season 3, Every Man for Himself. This flashback features Sawyer. He's in prison and Cassidy comes to visit and shows him a photo of a baby. It's Clementine, his daughter. He says he doesn't have a daughter and storms off. Sawyer befriends a new prisoner, Munson, and starts to turn him against the warden. Munson soon comes to Sawyer and says that his girlfriend is going to find the money that he stole and asks for help in hiding it. Soon enough, Sawyer goes to the warden and tells them where to find the money. In return, Sawyer gets six years off his sentence and a commission. Sawyer says to open an account in the name of Clementine. The warden congratulates Sawyer for lying and cheating his way out of prison. On the island, Jack tells Juliet he thinks Ben is in charge. Right on cue, Ben shows up and orders her to come with him. He says that the sub is back and Colleen is on it, injured. Sawyer and Kate see Colleen on the stretcher and Sawyer is glad that our team shot her and hatches a plan to shock their captors while they're distracted and escape. Kate asks a about Jack, but he says every man for himself. Ben comes and Sawyer tries to shock him, but he turned off the power and he ends up beating up Sawyer. When Sawyer comes to, he's tied down and is given a shot. Ben starts shaking a rabbit in a cage and it flops over. He says Sawyer, like the rabbit, has a pacemaker in him now that will kill him if his heart rate goes too high. Back in his cage, Sawyer soon has to give himself a cold shower when he sees Kate changing. Juliet brings Jack to the operating room to try to save Colleen, where he notices Ben's x-rays. He has Juliet assist in the surgery, but Colleen dies anyway. Pickett goes to Sawyer and starts beating on him, asking if asking Kate if she loves him. She says that she does. Later, she climbs out of her cage and he tells her to leave him and run. Instead, she climbs back into her cage. Ben goes to Sawyer and takes him out for a walk and he tells him that he doesn't have a deadly pacemaker and pulls out the bunny, alive and well. He then shows them their island and explains that they're on another island. He tells Sawyer there's nowhere to run. Meanwhile, Jack asks Juliet whose x-rays he saw and asks, who am I here to save? 
On the beach, Desmond tells Claire that she should move down the beach, but Charlie sends him away. So Desmond goes and gets a golf club from Paulo, ties it to the top of one of the tents, and sits and waits. Hurley asks if it's some kind of art. Desmond says, no, it's an experiment. It starts to thunder and rain, and a lightning strike hits the pole. The next episode is The Cost of Living, and in flashback, Mr. Echo is busted as a child for stealing food for Yemi, and he's forced to confess. We then see him as an adult returning to his brother's church after he's killed, taking his place. Gunmen enter the village asking for Yemi. They want drugs from the Red Cross, and they shoot a woman to make their point. But when Imeko comes to the church with his men, Mr. Echo kills them. Mr. Echo leaves for London as the vaccine arrives, but the village is boarding up the church, and Mr. Echo is told that he will be judged. He owes Yemi a church and must repent. On the island, Mr. Echo has been unconscious for a couple of days. He flashes back to Yemi's death and sees Yemi in his tent telling him it's time to be judged. Mr. Echo is pulled to safety when a fire breaks out and disappears. The next day, Locke tells Desmond and Saeed that he wants to use a different Dharma computer to try and communicate with the others. Hurley and Charlie return and say that they couldn't find Mr. Echo. Locke realizes that they're all going to the Pearl Station and invites Nikki and Paulo to come along. In the jungle, Mr. Echo hears and sees the smoke monster, but it disappears when Locke and friends find him. They reach the Nigerian drug plane, Locke asks Mr. Echo what he saw, saying he saw a beautiful bright light. Mr. Echo says that's not what he saw. Inside the plane, he discovers Yemi's body is gone. Down in the pearl, Saeed says the wiring is only one way, but at Nikki's prompting, they turn on some other monitors and see a room full of computers and a man with an eye patch. Mr. Echo on the surface sees Yemi and follows him into the jungle. Mr. Echo says that he asks for no forgiveness for he has not sinned. He only did what he needed to do to survive. Yemi then says, you speak to me as if I were your brother. The smoke monster appears and throws Mr. Echo around. Locke finds him first and Mr. Echo whispers to him as he dies. Saeed asks what he says and Locke said, we're next. In the Hydra, Jack asks Ben if he's feeling symptoms of his spinal tumor. Ben takes Jack to the beach for Colleen's funeral. Ben asks Juliet why she told Jack about the tumor, but she says that she didn't, though Ben just did. Ben later tells Jack that they wanted to break him and have him choose to help, but the plan was shot to sunshine. He asks Jack if he believes in God. Jack asks Ben if he believes. Ben says, well, two days after my tumor was found, a spinal surgeon fell out of the sky. Later, Juliet brings Jack a movie to watch, and she tells Jack that he should do the surgery because it's the right thing to do. But meanwhile, on the TV screen, Juliet is actually flipping cards that say Ben is a liar, he's dangerous, and that some of them want a change. They can kill him and make it look like an accident. She tells Jack to think about it and leaves. On to episode six, I do... In flashback, Kate meets her fiancé, Kevin, in a hotel room before their wedding, except he thinks her name is Monica. The next day, his mother, Suzanne, visits her and gives her a locket, and soon they're pronounced husband and wife. Sometime later, Kate is out shopping, and she calls the marshal from a phone booth. She tells him to let her go because she really loves this guy. He says if she could really settle down, he'd stop chasing her. 
but it's never going to happen. Kevin gives Kate tickets on Oceanic for their honeymoon. Kate takes a pregnancy test, and though it's negative, she freaks out. So she tells Kevin the truth and says she loves him but can't stay. She drugs him, and he passes out. She leaves his mother's locket with him and leaves. On the island, Jack examines Ben's x-rays. He tells Ben his tumor is borderline inoperable and has about a week. Juliet says their OR is fully equipped, and Ben says he's ready. But Jack laughs and says he wasn't going to do it. I just wanted you to know how long it was going to take for you to die. Kate and Sawyer, meanwhile, get put back to work when Kate refuses to work without Sawyer. Alex breaks in, though, looking for Carl, and he tells them not to believe anything they say and telling Kate that they're going to kill her boyfriend. Sure enough, Juliet shows up to get Kate and says she better come or Tom will kill Sawyer. Juliet brings Kate to Jack, and Kate tells Jack that he has to do what they ask or they're going to kill Sawyer. He sends her back, where Kate tells Sawyer about the surgery. Sawyer tells Kate that they're on another island and that he lied, so Kate would think that they had a chance they kiss and stuff yes jack meanwhile is mysteriously let out of his cell he finds a gun but sees sawyer and kate on the monitors cuddling ben shows up and jack tells ben that he will do the surgery but he needs his word that he can get off the island ben says done Meanwhile, Locke decides to bury Mr. Echo's body and heads off with Saeed, pretending to get shovels. Locke tells Saeed that the monster killed Mr. Echo and that Mr. Echo must have died for a reason. They come back with Mr. Echo's stick, and as Locke says a eulogy, he notices the scripture that's carved into it. It says, lift up your eyes and look north. Jack begins the surgery on Ben, and Pickett goes to kill Sawyer. Sawyer gains the upper hand on Pickett, but gives up when Kate is threatened. Pickett gets Sawyer on his knees to kill him and says it's for Colleen. But Jack, in surgery, cuts Ben and demands the walkie from Tom. Tom calls Pickett, interrupting him and making him give the walkie to Kate. Jack asks Kate if she remembers the story that he told her on the day of the crash. He says that he wants to know when she's safe, so when she gets back, he wants her to repeat the story back to him. He then tells her to go, but Kate screams that she can't. Finally, Jack yells, Kate, Kate damn, damn it, it run! run! And, and thud. thud. Yes, that's thud, thud, thud. Three more episodes of Lost in about eight minutes there. We're going to catch our breath, and when we come back, we'll share our thoughts on these episodes. We can't wait to share our thoughts on the next three episodes of Season 3 and get to your feedback and you all, everybody. But first, wanted to let you know that today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 50,000 titles to choose from that can be downloaded and played back on your computer or your iPod anytime, anywhere, just like the transmission. Mm -hmm. And thanks to Audible.com, you can get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. So if you've always wanted to read the many books mentioned on Lost, Audible.com is a great way to go. For example, you can pick up Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton, narrated by John Hurd. And I think he's an actor dude. He's been yeah, he's a, it's, he's a hey. It's that guy guy. Uh -huh. um, you might know him as Callie's dad on CSI Miami. He was also in Prison Break and The Sopranos and yep. lots of other stuff. In any case, this, of course, is a story of a dinosaur theme park. And I think a little movie was Yeah, based I, on I've this. heard of something like that. Um, and, of course, the references and expose 
Jose coming up here in Season 3 after hearing that sound of the monster. Paulo suggests that it was a dinosaur, and Nikki just kind of teases him. It's not Jurassic Park, Paulo. It's the South Pacific. That's right. So you can make that book your free pick with this offer. Just go to audiblepodcast.com slash transmission. That's audiblepodcast.com slash transmission. All right. So episodes four, five, and six here of season three of Lost and actually basically the last three episodes of the first pod of episodes that were aired before the long hiatus there. Right. Uh, What did you think about Every Man for Himself? This has become actually my favorite Sawyer episode. Really? Out of all of his flashbacks? Yeah, because this is where we really see him changing as a character. He, He... Drops. He and cheats his way out of prison. Yeah, well, he he drops that that facade, that macho facade, and be and starts to become like the upstanding hero person that we've grown to love. Well, okay, so like all original recipe uh, lost episodes where you've got an on, on island and a flashback for a single character right. with sort of parallels. So yes, in the flashback, he is you know being a scoundrel in prison. He's really mess you know conning people, but he does get a little soft and squishy and does open up the bank account for Clementine. Right. So on the island, um, we also see kind of that uh, disparity that duality in him when he sees that Colleen is hurt he's really happy actually yeah about and it. It, it actually kind of distresses Kate a little bit right he's like one for our team right um, but when uh, Kate is threatened that's really turns out to be Sawyer's weakness Ben calls him on it says I know you you care about Kate and that's what gets him to give up in many cases right so definitely a good episode for Sawyer love that character and so a strong one for him um, I, I was definitely struck by how the episode opened the opening shot of this episode where it's Desmond sitting on the beach watching what's going on and the camera whooshes somehow yeah. completely in a circle around him. And they've done that for Locke. Locke. Just like Locke. He's, so. they're, they're, they kind of both have the same expressions on their face too, yeah. kind of deep in thought. So, you know, when I saw that again, I'm like, well, now I feel like I need to revisit the first time we see them do that to Locke when he's sitting on the beach because what Desmond was doing was trying to process what his brain knew. Mm -hmm. You know, he was flashing through time. He was having visions of the future. So he's seeing what's in front of him and maybe having that sense of deja vu. Could that have been happening to Locke very early on? Well, I think maybe they're communing with the island on some level. I Mm -hmm. think they're, they're maybe sitting there thinking... But something is happening to them inside that comes from the island. Yeah, so I just really like that uh, parallel. I mean, we talk about eyes. We talk about all kinds of different themes. So that was a good one to see again. Um, also surfacing in this episode is the rivalry or at least you know the tension inherent in the boss and servant relationship between Ben and uh, Juliet. Right. Juliet tells Jack that... We make decisions together when, when Jack says, well, is Ben in charge? Mm-hmm. And she she denies it. And, you know, at the time, as she's saying it, you kind of think to yourself, uh, right, okay. And then Ben comes in and starts ordering her around. Right. And that really cements, for me anyway, the fact that maybe... Ben wants her to think some of the time that it is an equal partnership, that they do it together, but it's really not. Right. I mean, it goes back to the, is this a democracy? You know, who's in charge, free will and all of that. I mean, definitely an ongoing theme. I also like, I mean, it just I'm just remembering how quickly we fell in love with Juliet. I mean, Juliet is still at this point a very fresh character, but in many ways we're already identifying with her and, you know, positioning her in opposition to Ben, I think, was a great way to develop her as well. Another thing in this episode that I forgot? Ben yeah. kicks butt. 
I did not see that coming. I And it even shocked me the second time that we were watching it. I mean, I remembered that it happened. <laughs> but you see Ben walking up and, you know, he, he he's short and tiny and kind of studious looking. And when he pulls out that stick and starts whacking Sawyer, it's really shocking. It is. And, of course, I love that whack-it stick. I mean, that mm-hmm. whack-it stick is one of my favorite props to kind of track through the show. But, yeah, I mean, there have been episodes, and I think especially in the last season, Ben is kind of reduced to someone who doesn't know what's going on, maybe a little confused and weak and without direction. So just like here we see Sawyer at his best, actually we see Jack, I think, at his best in these episodes as well as far as, you know, knowing what's going on and, and having a plan. But definitely seeing Ben get physical mm-hmm. was uh, was was a nice, I don't know if refreshing is the right word, but it was definitely good to see. see. Anything else strike you? The Pulp Fiction moment. Ah, with the uh, with the the, 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 the needle. needle. And actually they reference, the, they don't say the name of the movie. No, and that's what I liked about it, you know, because people do that. People will reference other movies and not exactly know the name of the movie. And, and I thought the way that it was phrased was actually kind of funny. That movie. Right, it's like in that movie. Very cool. Um, we had, uh, well, this was a Sorry episode, so we had some nicknames. Uh, uh-huh. uh, yeah, what was the... He calls Munson, the, the other prisoner, he calls him Costanza. That was brilliant. <laughs> that was definitely a good, good fit. And Murgatroyd. Yeah, what is that? Isn't that like uh, Heavens to Murgatroyd, like the cartoon or something? Or I, was it something else? I don't know. Um, well, we're going to get emails now about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the, the, the line that uh, Sawyer gives to Ben about the book when he goes, don't you people read, you know, it's of mice and men. You'd like it puppies get killed i have to say i hadn't really started reading a lot i mean i i used to read a lot all the time but after i had kids i stopped reading and this was kind of the episode for me that really got me back into books yeah because i wanted to read of mice and men for a long time and seeing these two characters discuss it really made me want to read it well it was a fantastic scene specifically when ben turns it around and just recites those lines from of mice and men back to Sawyer you know um, just a, a great moment and I will I will confirm that my beautiful wife here Jen is now reading all sorts of things and definitely going back through classics I mean it's weird to see on our bedstand books that I avoided trying to read in high school and now she's devouring them but yeah you know literary references uh, definitely a good part of loss so good to see that here um, there were some I don't know if I would call them cringe lines because they weren't cringe lines yet but I'll tell you seeing them now here back in season three they made me a little kind of grumpy uh the the every man for himself you know sawyer uh-huh. yells that out and of course when they say the episode of the title or you know trying to throw it in that way it, it it always falls a little flat for me i don't know it might just be me and then kate responds live together die alone i know i and, know uh, well so t- you can't blame it entirely because of course by this point it hadn't been said too many times uh-huh. but to know that that not only does that line become a theme of the show and a title of an episode but it gets to the point where rose teases jack about that line yeah, yeah. it just you know again uh maybe some of these motifs don't need to be pounded in quite so hard um but you know i did mention this was a good episode for jack he when he messes with ben when he's talking to juliet in particular in that uh after after colleen dies and he she's like i'm not used to death and you think there's a moment of sympathy there from jack uh-huh. but he just kind of burns her yeah, she says, are you just saying that to make me feel better? And he says to her, I don't care about making you feel better. Yeah. So, again, you know, I think Jack, uh, it's funny when we look back at these episodes, I, I feel 
that we did kind of paint them with a broad brush because we were just kind of annoyed that they were very confined. It was a very claustrophobic set of episodes. And again, there was some frustration about how the, the season was broken up. But um, looking back, I, you know, I do feel more strength in Jack's character. It doesn't quite annoy me as much as it does. No, I, I actually feel Jack's pain and irritation, especially in this episode, because he really doesn't want to do the surgery and he's already beginning to know that it's kind of his only option. Mm, right, right. I mean, he, to some extent, he's seeing the I- inevitability of a situation, but he's also hatching a plan. He's thinking ahead. You know, this is the Jack that we really, really felt was lacking at this, at least at the beginning of season five. Right. So I think we should move on to the cost of living, the Mr. Echo episode. How did it rate this time around? Mr. Echo has always been and probably always will be my favorite character. And and his death has always been a real sore spot for me. <laughs> so this episode really brought that back, you know, that feeling of, oh, I can't believe he's gone. But on the other hand, there were moments that I really enjoyed, like um, the whole funeral sequence. You, you like that? Yeah. Well, the first time I saw this episode, I had just seen um, a documentary about Jonestown. Hmm. And it really reminded me of that. So it maybe maybe pulled those strings to me. I th- actually I thought that scene was one of the more surreal and weird. And now you know at the end of season five, still kind of makes me scratch my head as far as what what it was. Were they pagans? Were they hippies? What what exactly? And you know, what does it that? even mean? Well, uh, certainly we've as we discussed in during season five. One thing we've picked up on is that leaving bodies out lying around is yeah. a bad idea. Mm-hmm. So sure, you know, putting a body out on a raft and setting it a, a fire um, might be one safe way to properly dispose of it but you know the brenda lee and they had a pa system on the beach playing music like that i mean it just it it i could not i still even when we now know more about the others and even especially now as we know more about the dharma initiative i'm not sure how i can reconcile that with say the same culture that uh, that uh, richard alpert is part of and all of the others are part of that they're going to play brenda lee at a at a funeral i just thought that you know again it was more surreal to me but i guess it, it was more effective for you well one thing i noticed was um they used Brent, the Brenda Lee song and Brenda Lee was a contemporary of Patsy Cline. Right. And, right. and Patsy Cline is kind of Kate's motif. Definitely. I mean, they were kind of going for that style and certainly the musical choices on this show are, are always very interesting. Um, so I guess we can kind of go with that and, 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 and think about more what that might involve. Of course, this was a Mr. Echo episode and we see his childhood again and they kind of revisit some things that were hinted at before and how it all comes together. Um, I think the primary number one line that has come completely new meeting in this uh, rewatch is, you know, it is time for you to be judged. You know, it's time to Mm -hmm. be judged, which is what Ben says he came back to the island to do in season five. Right. So clearly this process, I forgot about it to some extent. So this process is actually uh, how things operate on this island. And I guess the smoke monster is key to that judging process. Right. I mean, see, this is where this episode really brings up a sore spot because Ben is allowed to live despite the things that he's done. And I feel like Echo killed the warlords for the right reasons. For the right reasons. He did what he had to do to save the church, even though the people in the, in the community didn't understand why he had done what he did. Right. And, and, Maybe it was simply because he was unrepentant. It's that... entirely because he was unrepentant. And yeah. again, that 
that fact that he was unrepentant and that was the reason why he gets tossed around like a rag doll uh, really did not satisfy me when we first saw this episode. But then now you look at, again, this Ben judgment scene where he goes to be judged and he is the sorriest, sorriest, sorriest repentant guy in the world. He is, he is really, really, really sorry. And maybe that was enough so that when the smoke monster shows up, he's allowed to live. Right. And I, I find that kind of fascinating. It begins, and, and of course, there's a lot of questions about uh, who else the, the smoke monster has judged. This was the episode where Mr. Echo and Locke both talk about what is supposed to be the same thing. Mm-hmm. But they see completely different things. That is not what I saw. You know, uh-huh. Mr. Echo saw something a lot more threatening. But uh, it is fascinating in the sense that both Mr. Echo and Locke were visited, uh, at least at, at this point in the ep- series, I think, twice by the smoke monster, right? Mm-hmm. This is Mr. Echo's second visit. The first one is the one where he sees the flashes and the pictures of, of what's going on. But then the oh, smoke yeah. monster goes away. Um, and this time he gets his judgment. So, yeah, again, um, I think the smoke monster and uh, Mr. Echo's mental condition and really the role he was going to play is very significant for uh, what happens in this episode anything else stood out for you well we were talking about cringeworthy moments in the last episode there was one moment in this episode that also kind of bugged me actually not kind of bugged me a lot (laughs) was when they're down in the pearl and they're discussing what all of this means and um nikki says well what are all these tvs for guys and Locke says well, suddenly I'm feeling very stupid. Right. It was. I totally agree with you. It was bad enough that Nikki gets the line that's you know it's completely blatant and obvious. Like, oh, why didn't we try these other televisions? Even though we've only used one, and there are six of them or nine of them up there on the wall. That was bad enough. But that they actually went a step further uh-huh. and had Locke go. Ooh, well, don't you know? <laughs> just... I could actually <laughs> feel Terry O'Quinn cringing as he said that line. I felt so bad for him, and I felt that scene could have happened a hundred ways, but to have Nikki discover the TVs and say something, I felt was a huge insult to the intelligence of the audience. I do remember kind of like, what was the whole deal with Paulo coming out of the toilet? Right. You know, that was really shocking. But of course, this all, to some extent, pays off to <laughs> later on in season three. But I agree. I mean, if anything was beginning to very quickly cement the fate of Nikki and Paulo, it was certainly this episode. Another thing that kind of made you roll your eyes, I think, in this episode, and, and involving Nikki and Paulo is the, you know, who's included, who are the cool guys, who has the information, and who's excluded. I mean, that whole game was tired back in season three. Why do they have to do that? We we are supposed to understand that they've been there all along. Why does it have to be pounded into her, our heads? Well, it's not just that to me. It's that, uh, you know, even Hurley, again, just like, you know, Locke getting that line about Nikki, uh, Hurley has the line here like, well, normally Jack would just go by himself or bring Saeed or Kate like he never included anybody and then Locke goes I'm not Jack and mm-hmm. you know again um, I think this was sort of a frustration early on this is sort of how group dynamics work politics in an organization and it is key to creating dramatic tension in a show if everybody talked to everybody else if everybody included everybody else you wouldn't have a program yeah the show would have been over in two Pretty seasons quickly. so and, again yeah. to some extent bringing that up for commentary I felt was a little unnecessary but still you know I think 
there were some good parts of this episode. I mean, we have, uh, once again, a key line and a key concept for the entire show, which is don't mistake coincidence for fate. That's mm-hmm. said in this episode. Um, and uh, Ben was very well. I mean, the interactions with Ben in this episode, particularly with Jack, I thought were brilliant, fun to watch. He has a line. He um, he tells Jack that they were going to break him and they had a plan and it was going to be so great, but it was shot to sunshine <laughs> yeah, absolutely. As, as soon as Jack saw the x-rays. And I just love the way that um, Michael Emerson delivers that line because he wants to spit out another word so badly and you can hear it in the way that he That's says That's the best sunshine. part. You yeah. actually almost hear that other word in your head. He doesn't have to say it because he conveys it so well uh-huh. with his face. Um, so very cool there. Um, we see very briefly um, a friend we later get to know very well, although I remember when I saw it the first time, I almost was ready to, you know, <laughs> to toss my cookies was, oh, there's a guy with an eye patch in that other station. Really? That scared me the first time. It really? Re- it really genuinely shook me up because I just was not expecting to see that. I don't know. I think it was in an episode where we had, again, dealing with kind of more cartoony level character development and and, and just some things that did rub me the wrong way that, it, oh, well, of course, the, there's not only there's another station with a guy in it, but he's got an eye patch. Uh-huh. It, it does work out in the end. Mikhail turns out to be, I think, a fantastic character oh yeah but yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I, i'm just having these flashbacks to how i kind of reacted to those moments now uh we did talk about the smoke monster we did talk about uh the judging and how it, it plays a role um also this episode is key because of our new understanding of what's going on on the island because yemi is mm-hmm. missing from the plane his body is missing from the plane and yemi appears to mr echo right so, Clearly, that's what's been that was going on here, and it actually makes me feel very good because it, whether it's season five or season three, clearly they had this in mind for what the smoke monster does and how it functions. That it somehow possesses, I guess, the bodies of people on the island. Right, and Yemi even has a line that I didn't even it didn't even register as it could have even been important. But he says, you speak to me as if I were your brother. And I didn't even realize what that could have meant, all the implications that that could have had. But now that we've seen um, Jacob and not Jacob, right. you yeah. really understand what that means. Or, you know, Christian Shepherd wandering around. I mean, just all of the other people who may or may not have been dead that were reanimated. Uh, I agree, because when we first saw the cost of living, we're thinking all of this is in Mr. Echo's head. Mm-hmm. You know, whether the body's missing or not, well, we've seen that before, but uh, that there might be a specific process going on, I think definitely uh, made me enjoy this episode a lot more as far as feeling uh, the confidence in the long-term vision of the writers on the show. Uh, okay, here's something. Do you think Juliet looks like Sarah? Ah, yeah, that was a strange line. I I guess... The, the, no, I don't. I, guess I think Juliet looks more like Penelope than she does Sarah. Right, right. I mean, I, that that was kind of strange in the sense that you get the feeling that she's being set up with Jack because to to pull at those heartstrings or something like that. But well, I don't that's see, what Ben does. He right. manipulates. People. But I definitely didn't see that, and I didn't even see in Jack's interaction with Juliet that he was being affected by her in some tense way that would remind him of Sarah. So yeah, I thought that was a very strange scene because I think it's either in this episode or the next episode where uh, uh, Ben tells Pickett or or Tom that he wants Juliet to spend more time with Jack, obviously, mm-hmm. to get into his head. But the similarity to Sarah, I didn't necessarily see. Well, we did mention the next episode, so let's move on there. I do a Kate episode, and maybe I should just step back a little bit, but what did you think of this episode? I, I enjoy this episode a lot, actually. I always have. But I have to say, and I'm, I'm going to confess this right here and now, 
It's just because of Nathan Fillion. Ah, uh, yes. Captain Tightpants from <laughs> Serenity <laughs> and Firefly. Definitely a high point. Good to see him in general. Um, but, you know, I'm going to go a step further than that. Um, it's not the best Kate flashback. Certainly, I think we agree that was in season five. We had to wait that long to kind of really feel for Kate. Um, but it wasn't the worst. Uh, I thought it was pretty good uh, insight into Kate's history. I mean, yes, we're seeing her repeating a pattern, which we kind of get tired of with some of these character flashbacks, but I think was relatively well done. I mean, the scene where she takes a pregnancy test. Uh, for Evangeline Lilly, that was, uh, I think, a significant uh, acting going on there. You could feel her hope and her sadness when the um, when the test turned out to be negative. I mean, the way I read that scene was that she had her hopes pinned on having a baby. I think she felt that baby equaled ability to hang on because she has that conversation with the marshal mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he says if you can settle down you i won't chase you anymore and i think she really felt that baby equaled settling down and that she was safe if she were pregnant well i thought i mean i read it definitely i think a little differently in the sense that i think she was primarily relieved she was actually very happy that she wasn't pregnant because that would have completely you know turned her life up down actually it could be both that she was disappointed because maybe she was thinking as drastic as that would be that would be her opportunity to reform but i really felt that she just felt that she had dodged a bullet and maybe the last bullet that she could dodge so she was going to get out of dodge right. and, and take off but so you know that i thought was pretty good for evangeline Lilly. The, the the only reason why this episode rang false to some extent is that she also had some awful moments like when she screams about taco night i don't do taco night i mean it's our favorite catchphrase we say it whenever we have taco night but <laughs> you know that was a little uh, just kind of silly to me so it was it was an up and down performance for her but definitely not the worst one for kate um other th- I thought Jack, you know, again, this is the the season finale or the half season finale. And I think that it was a showcase for Jack, even though it was a Kate episode. Right. The, the line, you won't have to be disappointed for very long. It's so cold and, and so heartless. And Matthew Fox delivers it with such spite. Such relish. You, you just, you really have to cheer for him after he uses that line. Well, when he turns on Ben and says, no, I'm not going to save you. I just wanted you to know how soon you were going to die. And you see the way he looks, the way he kind of chuckles and then and laughs in that Jack way. It, it, it goes right back to the episode where he finds, where, where Ben suggests that the Red Sox won the World Series. I mean, mm-hmm. it was another really good uh, moment there, I think, for Jack. Um, and Ben, Ben creeps you out. I mean, he was wearing his glasses in this episode. And for whatever reason, it wasn't. It didn't make him seem meeker or weaker. It seemed, made him seem even scarier to some extent. I know when Ben has his glasses on, he is up to no good. Oh, really? Is that what it is? I think so. Well, like when he's there were just uh, scenes where there were these episodes and this time of Lost, there's a lot of close-ups of faces. Mm-hmm. You know, the camera does not shy away from being right up there. And there were some really good close-ups of Ben's face that made me want to sit back from my television because he has that effect That close-up of him on the table just before the, the operation... It, it scared me a little bit when he's uh, looking down the cameras under him mm-hmm. and he puts it yeah because he's like well i'll see you on the other side but uh, just something about it sends chills down your spine actually that line see you on the other side certainly again a repeating kind of phrase in lost right 
Also, I think, you know, we have to acknowledge that this episode uh, was very key in the skater slash jader debates. Do we have to talk about this? <laughs> Just a little bit. I mean, it's been set up as a love triangle since season one. Uh-huh. Um, and this was an episode that, uh, I mean, it's explicitly put. Ben has the line. If I were a betting man, I would have thought Kate would have chose you. But uh-huh. instead, she chose Sawyer. And I guess uh, Sawyer fans are very happy about that. This is not an, a triumph for, for Sawyer Kate fans because... She refuses to answer his question afterward. She won't say that she loves him? Yeah. So you figure she... What, what was that? Just... Well, there are, of course, some people have the theory that she slept with him because that was actually part of a great master plan I don't, um, going on. No? I don't think that. I I just felt like it was a moment where they realized that they were going to die. And, you it know... It was just convenient or just an emotional moment of weakness? I don't think she was using him so much as it just it just happened and... and you know, I don't. I don't think at this point that she's in love with him. Well, I, she wouldn't say so, so I can see that. Um, but I thought that you know we saw in this episode as well as we saw in Every Man for Himself, the first episode. You know, uh, Sawyer is perfectly willing to push her away. You know, he's like, uh, I give, or you, we should give up, or we shouldn't do it, or you should run, or you should go away. Yeah. And several times, Kate doesn't run. And in fact, I think the big you know contrast set up in i do is that we see kate run in her flashback but in this up in on the island she for once refuses you know i won't i won't work without sawyer i won't leave without sawyer i can't leave without sawyer so mm-hmm. there's that i thought that the way that kate that jack decided to do the surgery after seeing sawyer and kate together i thought that was also you know kind of key in examining this triangle because it reminded me of the way that jack let go of sarah you know he just says is sarah happy that's what i want to some extent i think that's what he do you think that's what he did when he tells ben after seeing them that you know what i'll do the surgery because clearly i'm not a factor in for in kate's life so i just want to do what i need to do to get them safe or no no? because he says I will do the surgery if you let me go. Oh, right. It's not them. It's me. I want to get away from them because they are clearly together. You're and right. I can't You're deal right. with seeing them together. I want to get away. It's all about him. Yeah, again. I mean, at the very end, he's telling her to run. I don't think he says anything sorrier about that point. But I think either way you read it, it's him writing off Kate. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's me, get me off this island or damn it, Kate, run. He's done. Or mm-hmm. at least at this point, he's done. So anyway, you know, Jack, Kate, Jack, Sawyer, Juliet, Jack, uh, and it gets even more. There's various uh, geometric shapes that eventually evolve on the show, but <laughs> I did feel that it was necessary to address that. Anything else in uh, I Do stand out for you? There's a lot of references on this show to my home state. Oh, Florida. Yes, yes. Uh, well, Kate and Kevin, uh, the, 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 he, was a, he was a Miami policeman, definitely. Right, and Juliet also lives in Miami. Right, that's right. That's true. She, or at least her sister was there or something, or her hospital was there. At the very least, she was there. She spent mm-hmm. some time there. And uh, the, the line about uh, 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 Kevin says, I'm working on that fugitive recovery out of Tampa. That certainly seems like a possible crossover there for well, our fugitive and the Tampa job. Don't one of Sawyer. Yeah, the, the, the Tampa, Tampa job. job right. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. Uh, Florida kind of surfaces here as a, another perhaps pocket of lost magic going on. Well, That's, it is pretty weird. Right. It is a weird state. It's one one of the weirdest states uh, here. Um, now, uh, one of the more, I think, deeper lines that uh, stood out was uh, Tom complaining about Jack, mm-hmm. you know, saying he wasn't even on Jacob's list. Yeah. So what does that mean? Well, yeah, why is he there? What What is the purpose of him being here? Is it simply to work on Ben? Well, see, that's, okay, that's clearly the implication that he's upset that Ben had 
uh, Jack brought in because he needs the surgery. The reason why it sticks out like a sore thumb for me, for me now is that, well, Jack wasn't on Jacob's list, but now we see at the very end of season five, Jack is one of the chosen ones in Jacob's tour of the world. Yeah, Jacob does go to him and he does touch him. So, you know, I, I'm not sure what Jack has to do with this whole business off the island now. Well, I, I had to go back and look. And there is, in fact, another episode where Mikhail, when we meet him, talks about uh, Kate, Locke, and Saeed also not being on Jacob's list because mm. they're bad people. So what's going on here? We have this list. We have the list that brings everybody to uh, Alcatraz and then Hurley gets let go. I think that's a different list from Jacob's list. Or there actually probably is more than one list because at the end of season five, Ben complains to Jacob, you and all your lists. But there's, Yeah, there's that's true. I forgot about that line. But think about that. Jack wasn't on Jacob's list. Uh, Mikhail says Kate, Locke, and Saeed weren't on Jacob's list. And then who do we see Jacob visiting at the end of season five? Right, right. Kate, Jack, Locke, and Saeed so he gets them on the list he changes their mind it's a different list I mean the specific reference here just really got my mind spinning because uh, if Shepard wasn't ever on Jacob's list he definitely ended up somehow important to Jacob in the future yeah so definitely key another thing that struck me in this episode was I I think it actually gave us a very simple answer to a question we thought was raised in our last podcast Mm -hmm. you know uh, what was Ben talking about when he tells Kate that the next two weeks are going to be very unpleasant yeah and you know what takes two weeks what's going on and did they just sort of give up on that timeline? It was never mentioned again. Actually, it might have, because in this episode, there's a, oh, a schedule referenced. Yeah, Pickett says your two weeks are... Or something. The schedule is moved up. We've right, got to move right. now. And I'm guessing that, well, simple, simplest explanation is the best. They had previously planned for two weeks to break Jack to do the uh-huh. surgery, but that plan gets shot to sunshine. Uh-huh. The surgery is more uh, urgent now, so they can't wait for those two weeks, and that's all there is to that. So I kind of like that. So who's on the intercom telling Jack to try the door? Ah, the mysterious crackling intercom, uh-huh. which I don't think it seems pretty crystal clear at this point for that particular line. I just guess that it was Juliet. Yeah, well, there is evidence that it was Juliet because later on um, the season, there's the episode where they're handcuffed together and Juliet tells Kate well he ran away because you broke his heart so she knows that he saw them ah well and yeah well the reason why I thought that it was Juliet was that it seemed like part of the overall con to mess with Jack to get make you know let him loose so he can see them together and basically come to the conclusion that he's going to go ahead and do the surgery Mm -hmm. Um, but i've seen some people think that it was alex you know getting involved and earlier this season he hears his father's voice saying Mm -hmm. let it go but that could be just all in his head and the 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 thing that really struck me about this intercom as it became a significant prop was it reminds me of the uh, kind of broken up transmission sounds of the woman's voice in the hatch you Uh know before the before the doors come down and all that so they've definitely been kind of messing with us like what is that sound what is that recording what is it trying to tell us um so but you thought that it was uh, Juliet. well here's a crackpot theory we know that um not jacob can take the form of deceased individuals yeah. what if his shape-shifting abilities um extend into voices what if he can mimic voices what if he can make himself sound like Juliet and lure jack out uh that's that'd be interesting except Juliet's not 
dead, but you know it could be could be that. Well, wait a minute, we've got the the whispers still running around on the island too, and what they could involve. I think just basically uh, whether it's the recording on the in the hatch or that, there's just uh, there are some kind of messages being conveyed to our characters that they cannot hear clearly. Well, he did say it was crackpots. So. Right. Well, it still works, but I think um, we may want to expect an answer to this from season five. What are the whispers? What are these messages that may may or may not be not getting clearly to our to our characters? What are they trying to tell us? Um, the only other thing in this episode that I noticed was kind of a you know unfortunate cliche of drama and shows and stories in general that definitely reared its head here, which is Kate drugging <laughs> Kate drugging Kevin, which is something that Kate had done before. Well, people drug each other all the time on the show, not just Kate. I mean, when they put Juliet on the sub to go to the island, um, she had to drink the spiked orange juice. Right, right. Um, Sun tried to unsuccessfully <laughs> um, drug Jin, but she ended up getting Michael sick. I mean, drugging is a really big part of the show, actually. But I'm not sure if it's a big part of the show or the way that it suddenly seemed to me in this episode. I mean, someone actually had a whole theory. I think it was Sam G on the fuselage uh-huh. about drugs and who, who drugs who and the impact that it has on all the characters. But now watching it, it just seemed like uh, a, a cliche of storytelling well, that it's just convenient Yeah, mostly it's just a very convenient plot device. It's the easiest way to get somebody to do something or not do something. Or remove them from the equation. Right. But overall, I think, again, a decent episode. And of course, this was a half-season finale, a mini-season finale. Mm -hmm. How do you think that uh, it played now, the second time watching it around? That that dramatic ending with Sawyer on his knees, Kate crying, Kate uh, Jack in the operating room with Ben near death. I mean, did it work better? It it worked better this time than it did the first time. Um, There there was just something about... um, even though okay we there isn't much tension because we do know that they got away i mean there would be no show even if they didn't get away <laughs> right so there isn't much tension but the way that the scenes the the very last scene is directed with the rain with the yelling the music the music i thought it all worked very well yeah i mean sawyer and on his knees and kate pleading for his life and Jack saying for her to run and you know really that fact that she's saying I can't not because she's attached to either of them but because she can't she knows that she can't leave the island that's what she means by she can't but Jack right. doesn't know that yet um, just I I agree I, I I think I was disappointed somewhat with this as the half season ender but uh, now that we know what's going on we see the overall picture and we are not going to have to wait you know three or four months to see the rest of the story it definitely worked a lot better there so mm-hmm. there you have it the uh, first six episodes now we've covered of season three the first pod or half season and i think overall our verdict is uh, we definitely enjoyed these episodes much better the second time around yes much more favorable so that's our thoughts stick around stay tuned we'll be right back and we'll hear from you all everybody Ryan and Jen, this is Nathan from Idaho. Just a con, I've been listening to your latest uh, episode of the transmission, and I know this is nitpicky, but I just wanted to clarify, you guys were talking about the um, separation of episodes in season three. You said it was because of the writers, right? But that actually happened during season four. They had that break in season three because fans have been complaining about season two, about the erratic schedule. There would be one episode where there would be a new episode, and there would be two weeks in reruns, and then they'd be back for two weeks, and then be gone for three weeks. 
And so they decided we'll stick our first six episodes together, have a big long break, and then we can have the whole season straight through the rest of the season. Uh, the writer's strike actually was during season four, which, if you might remember, season four ended up being a couple episodes shorter than they had planned, um, which they they are making up in season five and six. They added an extra episode each to those seasons. So, just clarifying things. Thanks. Bye. We start things off there with a correction of sorts here on yeah, the transmission, we're and one many many people made, including Rich in Cleveland, Matt from Matt's TV Reviews, Illyrio on Twitter, and other good friends of ours. Yes, I greatly misspoke, and more than once, the gigantic gap in season three that we're now jumping over was in fact a deliberate decision right. by ABC, not writer's strike. So I guess now looking back, we should at least discuss: was that a good idea? Not really. I I felt very disconnected after the the break i what you know it's hard to remember in your head exactly what happened and how it made you feel and you go in and you kind of i don't know at least i felt disconnected no i think that it was uh, was a was a valiant effort to kind of avoid the rerun mixing up but it definitely didn't work these first six episodes i for one one thing that i will say is that they do seem to stand apart they have a specific tone a specific pace and as we've discovered we kind of like to some extent the the more pensive stuff the more close-ups on faces the more emphasis on character interactions and motivations but overall as far as momentum goes it just was more of a hiccup it just didn't feel smooth so if it's gonna be a choice between you know kind of getting episodes right up in fall when all the other new shows are coming out so we can feel good about it but then waiting for a little bit and then seeing the rest of it or what we're doing now which is unfortunately having to wait all the way until january or february but then kind of burn right through them i think we definitely prefer the latter option yeah i definitely do all right well let's move our attention to these episodes we've just watched and it starts off with a call from christine Hi, Ryan and Jen. This is Christine from Vandalia, Ohio. I am loving watching the rewatch with you on season three. I'm a definite season three, or I thought it was the most mysterious season where we really didn't know a lot about Ben and Juliet and the others and what they were doing. Um, the Cost of Living was not my favorite episode, I think, because it was so violent probably the most violent episode ever and uh but i did like a few things about the episode um the others in their creepy white tunics having that bizarre funeral playing the patsy klein song or whoever that was catching colleen's raft on fire it was just very strange it reminded me of some movie but i can't think of it i liked the parts with jack and ben when jack tries to make Ben thinks that he's going to do the surgery, and then Ben says he's very disappointed that he's not going to, and Jack says, well, at least you don't have to be disappointed for very long. I thought that was really funny because they're always messing with their minds, and it's funny that they he got to mess with his mind. Um, the episode I do, I thought, was uh, a good episode. The only comment I have about that is that um, Kate... When she calls the marshal, she seems to have, I don't know if anybody else picked up on this, but she seems to be very familiar with him, like they had some kind of special relationship going on, some secret relationship. They'd been intimate at one time. And uh, the uh, Every Man for Himself is one of my favorite 
episodes of all time. I love the uh, scene where Ben takes Sawyer and puts the um, pacemaker in him. Well, I, the, the best scene is when he brings in bunny number eight in the cage and is saying, hippity hop, hippity hop, come on, come on, come on, come on. That is just classic Ben creepiness. And uh, that's why I love Michael Emerson. So I am looking forward to watching the next batch. And thanks for your podcast. Bye. Mahalo for your call there, Christine. They're trying to valiantly cover all three episodes that we've just watched. <laughs> now, do you think that The Cost of Living was a just a really noticeably more violent episode? I think Echo episodes in general are more violent. But yeah, especially the sequence where um, Smokey finally gets him. It was, yeah, it is quite violent. Well, and there's also the church, you know, when he kills all of the men that come to visit him. And we also see the visions that he sees in the jungle with the man missing an arm. And I would say that the violence in that episode was definitely very visible you know, very, very strong. And to me, that immediately makes me contrast it to the quote-unquote violence that we get in Season 5, which is more like, I don't know, A-team sort of gunplay and jumping into cars and driving off in explosions and stuff. And yeah. I think that's less effective. It's definitely less effective when Lost does it than when they do the kind of violence that we saw in The uh, Cost of Living. Now, she also mentions uh, I Do. She thought it was a good episode. Do you think, though, that the Kate and Marshall had a relationship? No, I think in order for him to catch Kate he's kind of having to get in her inside her head a little bit and I think that's what any good law enforcement officer does is get inside criminals heads a little bit and I think that he was probably able to do that and that's why he's able to communicate with her the way he I does. I definitely know after she mentioned it I definitely kind of went back and tried to think of there's some there is some kind of intimacy there but I think you're closer to right in the sense that I think even in the most uh, in the most successful dramas or the most successful cop shows or movies about you know chases and pursuits there immediately develops a kind of you know come not camaraderie but a kind of relationship between the pursuit and the pursuer mm -hmm. that's not even taunting it's almost like we know each other so well so I think that's more what they were going for um, but I wouldn't be I wouldn't necessarily put it past Kate to use her feminine wiles to get away from him either but, but that's so tawdry <laughs> I guess I guess and finally every man for himself she really really loved it and uh, the whole pacemaker thing and the the bunny scene we didn't really talk about that in, at length did you like the bunny scene i didn't like it in the way that it wasn't pleasant to watch but you definitely got the feeling after that that Ben was somebody you didn't want to mess with and you had to respect him no matter what. You know, I can't remember how I reacted to the to it the first time. I think for whatever reason, I definitely feel I understood understand Ben's character even more now than I did then. Yes, Ben did very well here being creepy, but it was almost ridiculous uh, what was going on. Hippity hop, hippity hop, you know, yelling at a bunny for crying out loud. How do you pitch that scene to an actor to take it and play it straight? Right. But I completely agree that at least watching it this time, it's it was unnerving. It was it was funny, but it, it was immediately creepy. It's like I don't know. It's like seeing uh, a, a, a Barney in, in in a slasher film. It was a combination <laughs> of funny and creepy. Wow, so that I'm was a definitely I'm, I'm definitely with Christine there. So let's move on now, episode by episode. On the topic of every man for himself, Bonita in Atlanta writes: Sawyer pretends not to care for Cassidy or Clementine, but donates the proceeds of his prison con to her. The title, Every Man for Himself, is how he likes 
hates to appear, even saying this to Kate, yet his actions repeatedly prove he would sacrifice for her. I love how Sawyer grows in this episode, seeds of how he becomes a leader. I love the con Sawyer versus con Ben. This leads me to suspect Sawyer will be Ben's most formidable opponent in season six. That would certainly be a fascinating showdown, and we definitely got the first taste of that. The best way to earn a con's man, con man's respect is to con him. Right. So, and yes, we saw the growth. We mentioned it. We liked it. You know, Kate doesn't run in the episode where we see the flashback where she runs, and Sawyer is not really every man for himself. But with a contrary view on Sawyer comes Rich in Cleveland. He writes on the blog, Sawyer left Kate behind when he chose survival over love to escape the freighter threat. He did it again last season when he was willing to abandon them all and use the power derived from the island for personal gain and the good life, much like Charles Widmore. Only Juliet brought him back then. As the menacing warden said, Congratulations, Sawyer. You just lied and cheated your way out of prison. A little metaphorical, I think, in that it won't be Sawyer's last opportunity to make that decision again or not. Although he has shown growth, he still regresses to the every-man-for-himself code to often. Often. To vindicate Jacob, he'll have to overcome this. So what do you think? Is Sawyer every man for himself or is he a softie? No, I I believe he jumped out of the helicopter to save everybody. So that, you, you don't I mean, believe what Cassidy says, that it's a coward. He didn't want to have to think about having to be with Kate if he got off the island with her. No, I think he loved her. Oh, that's sweet. And uh, Mike in Virginia also had similar thoughts on the blog. Uh, Who's up next? Soko writes, I had forgotten about what I thought to be Kate's escaping abilities. She would seem to be able to escape from anyone and from anywhere. I noticed that pattern through the first season and through the early Hatch episodes. So when she practically walked out of the polar bear cage, I was laughing and cheering at the same time the first time around. This time, I just wondered what happened to Kate's knack for escape? And has she still got it? And I haven't been paying attention. Well, you know, Kate is an enigma. She can mysteriously track people in the jungle like a like a master tracker and a hunter. Right. And she certainly does have a knack for escaping like Houdini. Um, but uh, do you think I, I certainly thought it was poor cage design that she's able to just sort of slip out the top. But so what do you think about that? Is Kate's powers or abilities um, lost or forgotten? Ben had them on Alcatraz for a reason. He he wanted Jack to do the surgery and he maybe he felt like he needed um, Sawyer and Kate as bait. But also, I think he was testing Sawyer and Kate or maybe just Kate. I think her ability to get out of the cage was kind of part of a test. He wanted to see to what degree he could count on her to run or to not run. I think if she had put her mind to leaving, she she probably could have because she is that resourceful. Hmm. Um, I, I think at this point, he's really trying to figure out what they're going to do. Okay, well, I can kind of see that. I mean, certainly we are meant to understand that those cage uh, sessions were a test as to their loyalty to each other. Would one leave or leave one the other, be, leave the other behind? Um, so why not? that be a deliberate thing, a plan on Ben to to see what their motivations are, who they would stick around for. It did seem overall that basically um, Ben was trying to determine her loyalty to one or the other, so I'd kind of go with that. But what about uh, Soko's question? I mean, where do you feel Kate later demonstrates an inability to escape? She gets trapped in some way? I don't think so. I know she gets out of going to jail when she gets back off the island because her mother doesn't testify against her, so in a way she kind of gets out of that. um, I, I suppose she maybe loses her mojo in season five with the whole Aaron thing and ends up back with Jack, even though she doesn't want to go back. She decides she wants to go along with that. But 
I don't think we're necessarily see we necessarily saw a loss of Kate's ability to escape. She maybe just wasn't presented with the opportunities as as vast as she had up until this point. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the cost of living. Gavin writes the unfortunate Echo death episode. My biggest question was about the smoke monster. I know it's supposed to be a security system and that it can be called to the other's barracks, but it seems to have a mind of its own and can act of its own accord. If it is supposed to protect the temple, why does it go into the jungle from time to time? And why did it kill Echo the second time it saw him and not the first? Well, first of all, certainly it does have a mind of its own. It acts independently. Well, to bring that attack dog analogy further, Ben says, I can summon it, but I can't really control it. Right. So to some extent, that's certainly true. Um, as far as, you know, how is it a security system and, and how does that work? Um, I'm kind of curious about that. Still, it does sort of protect the temple or protect the vicinity or protect the island, but it certainly also acts as the judge and executioner to some extent. The conscience kind of even. That. The conscience of the island. And now that we've been through season five, the relationship between anti-Jacob and the smoke monster is, I think, going to be a key question going into season six. Yeah, they, are they playing on the same side? Is one serving the other? Or are they one and the same? I don't think that's necessarily the case, but we see in this episode an early example of it possessing another body and certainly it does just why do you think it went after Echo and didn't kill him the first time? It just showed him the slideshow of, you know, this, this is your life. And the second time, it n- knocked him around. Well, like we were saying before, the first time, he didn't express any—the second time, he didn't express any kind of repentance. Um, it, the smoke monster must have seen something in him and just waited to ask him, are you sorry? Are you repentant? And when he refused to repent, that's when he realized— or that's when Smokey realized that he needed to kill Echo for whatever purpose. And I'm trying to remember if that first visit wasn't uh, Mr. Echo with Charlie or he was with someone else. He that was, was with Charlie, it. that's right. And uh, we even see in this episode that the smoke monster seems to be very sensitive as to whether someone else is around when it's doing its thing. You know, right. it sort of floats over Mr. Echo's head. And then when Locke and friends show up, it sort of whisk, you know, kind of runs off and hides. Mm-hmm. So maybe that was it, too. Maybe it just hadn't finished its transaction the first time it processed Mr. Yeah, Echo. Yeah, maybe the first time he was kind of sniffing him (laughs) checking him out annie writes an email and says while i really love the mythology aspect of the cost of living specifically regarding the monster the character development in this episode stinks in my opinion the flashback is uninspired and even though echo is a character i really enjoyed i feel like this episode single-handedly took away all the things about him that the previous season had established when we're introduced to echo he is grieving over killing two people even though he acted in self-defense all throughout his time on the island he's trying to redeem himself and make up for his mistakes. Then, in this episode, he all of a sudden is not repentant even over things he really should be repentant about. Yeah, well, I killed a lot of people, you know, whatever, I did my best. While his death could have been heroic, like Charlie, or tragic, like Boone or Libby, in the end, he died because of his own selfish defiance, and this left me feeling unaffected by his death. What a bummer. I don't really think he should have been repentant for what he did, because he really passionately believed i think in in saving yemi's church and for doing the right thing i really felt that he did that well i don't know i I think eddie makes a good point he was sorry for killing people in self-defense earlier so why isn't he sorry in this case and so my solution or my answer is that you know what annie i completely agree i felt that it was a really strange turn for mr mr echo's character but they basically had to have him make this 180 degree turn because the actor wanted to get off the show 
Yeah, that so too. There's that. You know, the simplest explanation for what is otherwise an inexplicable character turn, um, and unfortunately, it had to happen. I and all I can say now, especially here as we're on the cusp of season six, is I do hope that the writers find some way to do one last thing, some one last opportunity for Mister Echo to yeah, redeem himself. Me too. Jan from France writes, The monster tried to catch Locke at the end of season one to bring him to the others as a leader, but failed. Now he has moved his attention to Echo. That is why during season two, John is so lost. Nobody tells him what to do next. And Echo, who needs forgiveness from his dead brother, has all the dreams telling him what to do next. So what happens during episode five of season three? Echo tells his dead brother, I don't need your forgiveness. Then the monster knows he won't be able to use him anymore. You speak to me as if I were your brother and kills him. John arrives and Echo tells him, you're next, meaning you are the next one who will be used to do the monster's bidding and eventually be killed. Well, that's an interesting way to kind of frame what's been going on. Yeah. That uh, the monster was working with Locke at first and, you know, it lets him go or they, they actually stop him from being pulled down the hole. Mm-hmm. But I guess that could have been to either judge him or kind of put him in his, his position as rightful leader. But kind of like the way that he sees it, that when the smoke monster is focusing his attention on Mr. Echo, Locke is l- lacking the sense of direction. And here he basically says, oh, it turns out Mr. Echo wasn't the right guy. Yeah. So I kind of cool that. And your next is you, Locke, are next. You or the next puppet. Right. So, yeah. I kind of, I really like that thinking. Good thinking. Yan from France. And moving on to I Do. Robin from the TVCritic.org emails and says, The problem with Kate's story here is that it makes her look selfish and thoughtless and not sympathetic at all. She killed her father, not really for her mother's benefit, but because of her own anger. Now she marries Kevin, knowing that she is deceiving him, and when things become tough, she leaves him. And not just leaving him, but crushing him and doubtless doing some serious psychological damage to a clearly nice guy. The writers don't intend to paint Kate as a selfish, thoughtless person, though. I am confident that the story is meant to make us feel sorry for her. Just as she finds happiness, it is robbed from her again, but it isn't. She chooses to leave instead of confiding in him. Well, she does sort of confide in him. Yeah, she tells him exactly what's going on before she takes off. I mean, I think that confessing moment was important for the the character and for her relationship. I thought that she was presented relatively sympathetically here. I didn't. You know, she got together with Kevin knowing that he was a police officer and knowing that when things got hairy, it was going to be bad for both of them. I suppose. What I'm wondering, and I'm not sure if we'll ever know this, this is just my own uh, imaginings, is I'm wondering how the relationship with Kevin started, right? I mean, it almost seems like yeah. maybe Kevin was the next victim or the next mark or just the next guy that she takes yeah, advantage of. Just and how she did was they surprised meet? That's just a really him. interesting idea. That's a really interesting thought. That's a very, very interesting thought. And I, and again, I think it was more that Kate, I think I don't think Kate went into it uh, thinking that she would fall for him. I think that what we experience is particularly when she talks to the marshal is that she's also surprised that she's actually developed feelings for him. Liz writes, I have to say that although Kate is not not my favorite character of all time. I really liked I Do. I think it mostly has to do with the fact that Nathan Fillion is in this episode. <laughs> I loved him a lot in Firefly and love any chance that I get to see him again, especially on a show that I am already a huge fan of. Well, of course, that's very true, and you shared the same sentiment, yes. and I included that just because of that, and also um, because Liz, is uh, she's doing her own Lost rewatch, and, and she's doing it on YouTube. It's a video rewatch, and they're going back and watching episodes as well, so you can check her out at YouTube dot com slash Great Lost Rewatch. Cool. But um, anybody who has the same taste in men as my wife is a friend of mine. 
wait a minute, <laughs> and emails and says, my husband and I agree that the Jack we see in these episodes, especially at the end of I Do, is the version of Jack we know and love. He's not the obsessed stalker we see in the premiere or the somewhat wimped out Jack of the Dharma era, even if he does yell at Kate, this Jack actually thinks before he acts. Yeah. I agree. Absolutely. He's the tough Jack, thinking Jack. Jess in Missouri writes, I have a lost puzzle that maybe you can solve. Even more intriguing than where did Jack get his tattoos, yawn, (laughs) is where did Ben get his manners? Here's a guy who was raised by a beer-swilling child abuser and lives in a commune of militant hippies, later replaced by tent-dwelling Jacob worshippers. Yet he is impeccably well-spoken and his manners never flag. Put on these handcuffs, please. May I have my walkie-talkie back, please? He even formally introduces Alex to her mother from his puddle of blood on the ground. Ben's politeness certainly makes him seem more sinister. I just can't figure out where he learned it. Well, it's a fair question. He's a really nice guy considering his background. Well, he he can present as a nice guy. Right. His background. But, you know, think about Richard Alpert. Here's also someone who has this tie to the island, very right. historic, and he kind of has uh, a more a greater elegance to him. A gentility. You know? a, a gentility to him. So I think that does kind of go back to the nature of the island, its original inhabitants, and, and how that all plays out. But uh, definitely a great observation. And I agree, a better question to try and address rather than Jack's tattoos. So that brings us to our last comment for this show from Seth on our blog. I haven't rewatched watched season three since it aired since it's the show's weakest season for me but while there are still things that jump out at me as lazy i enjoyed the episodes more this time around there were a few amazing moments the yemi apparition saying you speak to me as though i were your brother to echo which still gives me chills yeah the other's funeral for colleen which was bizarre at the time but now it might make a strange kind of sense maybe they send their dead out to sea so auntie Locke can't use their likeness to haunt people ben's revealed to sawyer that they're on hydra island which is beautifully shot and that's of course makapuru point out mm-hmm. there and the very sweet I love you too post lovemaking scene in the cages. There's something off about these episodes for me though and I think that it might be the score. Don't get me wrong I'm a huge Giacchino fan and owe all the lo- and own all the lost soundtrack albums as well as the one for Ratatouille Good but his music in these episodes seems to be leading the viewer in a direction I wasn't going already in particular the Sawyer-Kate sex scene which should be desperate and sad and oddly lonely. They're having sex for comfort because they both think that they're going to to die, but instead the music is swelling and romantic. I usually find Giacchino's music perfect, but not so much in these episodes. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought of that. But yeah, that's a really good point. The music in these six episodes, to me, doesn't really fit the tone that they're going for visually. Well, you know, I'm not necessarily sure. I think that we've described these six episodes as very eerie and pensive, and I think that does get served by the music. I don't think that it takes center stage, though, the way that the music does a lot of other times. It's not quite as prominent in these episodes, but that scene that that, uh, Seth describes, I think you're right. And I think part of it is that there's what's going on with the characters, right? They're they're mm-hmm. scared. They think they're going to die. This is a last desperate act. And then there's what is actually happening in the hearts and minds of the viewers, which is they're finally getting it on. Woo! So, yeah. I mean, I think that's basically the kind of disparity or the, 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 the difference that is happening there. When he mentions the music, I and I had to think back, I'm like, where, where do I remember seeing or hearing the music?
music in these episodes. It didn't seem as prominent except for the final scene where the big, you know, showdown is. The rain suddenly starts coming down. Kate starts screaming. Mm-hmm. Sawyer's on his knees. There the music really swelled. And, and and as far as I'm concerned, it did sell me. It did add to the moment. It did make it that dramatic punch that they really wanted to get yeah. for, the end of se- for the end of this half season. But a good thought. And uh, we really should talk more about the music on Lost because we are big fans. Seeing Giacchino play that music, I mean, conduct the music in front of a live orchestra, the the Lost score was, was ap- amazing. It was definitely a high point of our many years of Lost Phantom. We want to thank everybody who emailed and commented and called the voicemail line. We did not get to include them all in the show, but we definitely appreciate it. We also want to send shout outs to some fans who've come to visit and uh, that we've actually gotten to meet here on the island. Carmel from Israel. Hi, Carmel. She's Carmel Vaisman on Twitter. We also met Nettie all the way from Germany. Matt from St. Louis, who is the guy behind the Keys to Lost podcast. Yeah, very great to meet him. And of course, Ralph and Stevie visiting from California. And you may know Ralph as Casino Skunk on Twitter. And he is also a, a, a veteran Lost podcaster and a blogger as well. It's really great to see all of these folks. I mean, I think in this last season of Lost, it's not a surprise that more people are making that journey here to the island. And And finally, we'd like to take a moment to specifically thank everybody who went over to the iTunes store and gave us great feedback on our podcast. A great big I mahalo to Hardcore Havoc, Anita and Finn, Selfie, and STC Shindo. Thanks a lot, folks. In any case, great feedback all around. And once again, we're glad you're taking this trip down memory lane with us. Frankly, it'd be pretty lonely all by ourselves. Now, remember, every email, whether we can include it in our podcast or not, enters you to win a limited edition Benjamin. Linus Bobblehead Doll, which was a Comic-Con exclusive item from Entertainment Earth, or you can also win a copy of the Season 3 and Season 4 albums from the Others Lost Band, the great band based in Massachusetts that writes a song based on every episode of Lost, and in fact we got the prizes. It's not just the CDs. It's got some other stuff No, there's there. some really great um, tote bags that it's go with the It's a tote bag CDs. with the logo. It's got pins and stickers and, you know, just great stuff, so we really want to, again, thank the Others Lost Band for contributing yes, to our So looking ahead, our next podcast will be around October 4th, covering season three, episodes seven, eight, and nine. Mm -hmm. That's Not in Portland, a Juliet-centric episode, Flashes Before Your Eyes, the amazing classic Desmond episode, (laughs) and Stranger in a Strange Land, the not-so-classic Jack episode. (laughs) We'd love to hear your thoughts, observations, new discoveries, nitpicks, whatever you got by October 2nd. What did you notice this time around that you missed the first time, or what things suddenly seemed to foreshadow things that we later see in season four and five, and what things seem to, well, suddenly contradict or just not fit with the Lost we know today. Just send us your feedback via email to lost at hawaiiup.com. You can post it on the blog at hawaiiup.com slash lost or call and leave a message on the Lost line at 815-310-0808. Coming up in about four minutes, we will have the Forward Cabin where we hide production news, rumors, spoilers, and this week, boy, do we have a lot. We do. But first, as a special treat to clear the aisles up to the Forward Cabin, we have a little musical interlude. This is a song by the Others Lost Band. It's based on one of the episodes we just discussed, The Cost of Living, and the song is Nothing to Confess. Here's the Others Lost Band. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want oh yeah me yeah me I'm your brother and I won't let you 
Nothing to Confess by the Others Lost Band, uh, based on the Season 3 episode, The Cost of Living. You can find more information about the band and even hear more of their music over at myspace.com slash the Others Lost Band. Great stuff. And final warning, it is now spoiler time. It's where I do most of the talking and Jen, for a few minutes each week, wishes she really wasn't married to me. (laughs) All right. Well, on our last podcast, we had a lot of reports, uh, starting with Jacob's Beach Temple, you know, Locke and Ben and Alpert, and uh, jungle filming in Kaneohe with Kate, Jack, Sawyer, and Miles and others, presumably picking up at the Swan Station. So we got a strong sense from those reports that things were picking up in both timelines exactly where things left off at the end of Season 5, and I think that was encouraging to you. Mm -hmm. Well, what a difference two weeks make. Things really picked up after Labor Day weekend, and uh, well, the big scene that was shot was indeed LAS. Yes, the title of the first episode of Season 6 was a major set shot here in Honolulu, Los Angeles International Airport, played by Honolulu International Airport. The production crew ventured over there, and they also used Pier 2 across from Restaurant Row. And Pier 2, by the way, had already been used previously as an airport scene for a scene with Sun during Season 5. In any case, it was a big to-do, and uh, pretty much the whole cast was there. Everybody you might guess, or even dread. Cited over those two days were Matthew Fox, Evangeline Lilly, uh, the Marshal, whatever the actor's name is, Jorge Garcia, uh, Josh Holloway, Naveen Andrews, Daniel Day Kim, and Yoon Jun Kim, and... 
Emily DeRaven, of course. Mm. We knew she was coming back. Yeah. Claire, uh, Dominic Monaghan, Charlie, I uh, guess that uh, could be shocking. Also, Daniel Roebuck, everyone's good friend, Dr. Arts, <laughs> and the guy with heartburn, good old Neil Frogert, played wow. by Sean Whalen. So it looks like, again, friends lost are found once again. So a number of scenes unfolded there for the airport. Uh, inside, uh, Jack is freaking out at an airline counter. He's saying, you know, my father's funeral is in just two hours, and it seems like something has happened to his father's coffin. Mm. Uh, Jin and Sun are there, and Jin is once again speaking only in Korean and unfortunately being a bit of a jerk again to his wife. Kate, meanwhile, is in the handcuffed custody of the marshal, but after arranging a visit to the bathroom, it appears she gets away. So there you go. She escapes. Now, Kate makes a break for the door. She passes Hurley and says hey to him. And she jumps the line of the taxi stand. That makes someone mad. It turns out it's Neil Frogert. And she gets into a cab and it drives away. The marshal emerges soon after. And he runs to some security guards waving a piece of paper with Kate's picture. Mm-hmm. And she tells them to keep an eye out for her. But uh, he notices the cab and runs after it. So that was some pretty cool stuff. And thanks to Eric, Casey, and even our friend Mitchell. Mitchell for uh, sending in those scoops. Now, those were the location shoots, but there was actually a lot of work done at the Diamond Head film stage. Now, several days cooped up at that studio where information is usually and understandably pretty scarce. But fortunately, I just heard yesterday from someone who was working for almost a week, and uh, we'll call her Jay, and she shared some great notes on the scenes that were filmed there. You ready? Yeah. The set, as you may have already guessed, is the interior of Oceanic Flight 850. And it was a pretty elaborate airplane set with moving walls and everything you might expect to build an airplane indoors. And the objective was indeed to recreate scenes from the lost pilot as accurately as possible, as we already saw them. Right down to having somebody there with the little video player playing back the pilot so they could compare setups and shots. So definitely some of the things that unfolded there were familiar to us. We have Jack and Cindy, the stewardess everyone's wondering about, and they're bantering once again over weak airline drinks. Rose is there waiting for Bernard to come back from the bathroom. And yes, folks, turbulence hits the plane and the passengers shake and they shake more and they shake even harder. And as you can imagine, on the set, it's probably a little more comical than it is going to be on screen. But this time, the flight continues across the Pacific Ocean. So now we get to things that we haven't seen before. We see Bernard. He returns from the bathroom to Rose, and he jokes to her about needing a change of clothes. Cindy runs down the aisle to the back of the plane where our friend Charlie is apparently upset and raising a ruckus of some sort. She ends up actually calling for a doctor. Wonder who that doctor might be. Now the plane does land. Oh dear. And a despondent Charlie is first led off the plane with his hands bound. Um, also, Hurley is recognized by Dr. Arts as that chicken shack guy. And uh, Dr. Arts, being his obnoxious self, basically says, hey, 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 do the line from the commercial. Say say the line, say the line, and basically makes Hurley into a performing monkey of some sorts. And Sawyer is nearby watching the whole exchange. Um, Boone and Locke share words. They exchange uh, at least some knowing glances. And Boone is upset about not getting first-class seats. I think that was telegraphed previously. 
previously. Right. And Locke, poor Locke, does eventually get lifted by some men and put in his wheelchair while Jack patiently waits. So some stuff we've already seen, like I said, but a lot of stuff we haven't because we've basically crossed that threshold where uh, things seem to be different for our friends. Now, our source, uh, what did I say her name was? JJ. JJ didn't see everybody. So presumably there were some other scenes taking place in uh, other parts of the plane. I mean, in fact, uh, she said there were actually there was actually some confusion and phone calls probably back to the mainland as to where where these characters were sitting, like where Kate and the Marshal were on the plane. Uh, her only other observation was that Daniel Roebuck, uh, Dr. Arst, was a little friendly, um, I guess a little flirty with the ladies, but very, you know, very fun, a really fun guy. Uh, oh, she also said that she did see um, Emily DeRaven, Claire, but she wasn't dressed up to be in the shot, and she seemed to be there for something else. She said it looked like she was playing with a, a big old style wooden gun. gun. So I don't know what that means, or maybe she was just hanging out, but certainly very interesting stuff, and thanks a lot to Jay for that insider report. Um, yesterday, they were filming out at Kahala. Now, they were actually less than a couple of blocks from the house that they had used where Hurley was hiding out with his dad and unconscious Saeed, so um, a, f- uh, a friend of mine lived there and said, oh, they're back, and uh, reports that a yellow taxi cab pulls up in front of a house, and two women emerge. Now, the two women are a very pregnant Claire. So there's Claire. And she's accompanied by, believe it or not, Kate. So Kate and Claire together off the island after the plane lands, whatever that means, nobody knows. It actually looked like Kate was driving the taxi cab. So I don't even know what that means. Now, they walk up to a house. Uh, Claire knocks on the door, and an unfamiliar woman that uh, we've not seen yet answers the door, and Claire introduces herself. As soon as Claire says who she is, the woman immediately breaks down crying, and she says something to the effect of, I'm sorry, I'm very sorry. You know, I really wanted this, but my husband, uh, I, I just can't have the baby right now. So... Claire does make it to L.A. to give up the baby, but uh, perhaps not surprisingly, the adoption isn't going to go very well. They're not invited inside, and it's kind of an awkward moment. But after a few more more words are exchanged, it's Claire's turn to start crying and yelling, but it's because she's going into labor. She cringes, she bends over, and uh, Kate says, "'Call a doctor!' And uh, that's the end of that scene, at least as far as uh, our source, Carrie. Thanks for that um, very tantalizing scene. And having seen it, the, the, the questions immediately came up, you know, how to, again, Claire and Kate, uh, who are supposed to be strangers, are they strangers? Does anybody remember anything? Or how do they come together? And uh, it turns out just today, Saturday, which is unusual, they were filming again. Mm-hmm. And uh, much to my wife's either joy or chagrin, um, we decided, or I guess. I decided to drive past them filming on our way out to go meet Ralph and uh, Stevie. So um, hot off the presses, I guess. One last filming report here for the transmission. They were back at the airport, uh, spotted there by some other folks, uh, Jack, Kate, the Marshal, Claire, and Dr. Ars once again, I guess, being depicted, leaving the airport after the flight. And in the one scene uh, that uh, was there, Kate gets into uh, a cab, or actually the cab that Claire is in, and points a gun at the driver. So that may be the start of the story. Uh, We don't know why Kate picks that particular cab, but she definitely 
Charlie hijacks it at that point with a driver. Um, and what we saw driving past uh, on, on Coapaca Street right by the airport, they were filming a scene with the taxi being pulled by a camera truck. So the car is driving, moving on the road. And, and for us, it looked like the scene was Kate driving the cab. No driver there. And Claire's not there. Claire's actually on the side of the road and Kate picks up Claire. So I don't know how we kind of reconcile what was reported to us from the airport versus what we saw driving past. Mm -hmm. But basically, it sounds like Kate hijacks the cab and decides at some point to use said cab to help Claire get to where she needs to go. But you know, darn, we still don't know if Kate and Claire are together because of chance or, or fate or or because one of them remembers what's going on. And uh, I guess we're just going to have to wait until season six begins to see how that happens. And uh, I guess as a final note, it was interesting. The filming of this scene had to stop because today was also the Thunderbirds show, right. the, the air show, the F-14s flying back and forth over the uh, over the skies of Honolulu, over Honolulu and, and definitely over the airport. So that actually kind of got them to stop. And we only heard them from Bishop Museum when we were wandering yeah. around with Ralph and Stevie. In any case, that's what I was talking about, folks. That is the jam-packed forward cabin. And uh, like I said, I'm still processing what it means. I mean, we thought they were picking up where they left off, but this indicates that they did change the future and Jack's plan worked and I, I might be presuming here but I'm not sure if, if you're happy about that. I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of scary but we just have to see what happens. So is it an alternative timeline? Is it a reboot? I guess we just got to go with what we've been told emphatically and I would encourage all of you to listen as well when they say trust us so <laughs> we're just going to have to trust them so that's uh, the forward cabin and our two weeks of filming quite a lot of things to chew on and that means that's it for this episode of the transmission remember your homework is to watch season three episodes seven eight and nine and to get your feedback to us by friday october 2nd this show is powered by you so please send us an email comment on the blog call the lost line you can post a review on itunes even tweet us on Twitter. We love hearing from you however you do it. Email us at lost at hawaiiup.com. Comment at hawaiiup.com slash lost. Call 815-310-0808 or find us on Twitter. He's Hawaii and I'm Mrs. Hawaii. That's right. Now we'll be back in two weeks to continue our Lost Season 3 review and more news from the show's production right here in Honolulu. But until then, folks, enjoy. Stay, Stay lost. lost. Aloha. Aloha. This podcast is a proud member of the Lost Podcasting Network. Get all your favorite Lost podcasts in one feed at lostcasts.blogspot.com.